my experience as far as reviewing pitches is probably in the hundreds, if not thousands, right? And I think there's a skill set that entrepreneurs need to develop when it comes to pitching their story. I, I always urge or or recommend to entrepreneurs just to make sure that you have a very clear story. I think at the end of the day, capital providers, whether it's you know venture capitalists or whether it's strategics or you know debt providers, kind of all the different worlds there, you know, are typically looking for a similar framework of things. And so I, I think that's a relatively basic skill, but it, it is a skill that you know hopefully can be honed in over time. I think some of the more more critical errors as I think about it is not having a full grasp of what are the one to two or three things that are going to break, make or break your company. And now from San Francisco and the UCSF Rosenman Institute, the Health Technology Podcast with your host, Christine Winotto. On every startup founder's mind is the question, what do investors want to hear? Our guest today, Amrinder Singh, knows all about that. But his advice is not exactly to guess what investors want. Amrinder is currently a principal at Benzana Capital, and he has a lot of experience in the industry. Prior to Benzana, he was a senior investment director at Medtronic Ventures and also led their business development and strategy. All this means he is very knowledgeable about the questions startups want answered. And today, I asked them all. Here's our conversation. Well, thank you, Amrinder, for joining me this morning. Thanks, Christine. It's a pleasure. And so you are uh, sitting in Minnesota, Minneapolis, um, but you used to be in California. Tell me what your background, uh, where you started, like how you end up working in uh, medical devices and now here at Pinsano. Yeah, no, thanks. Thanks again for for having me and, you know, really appreciate the work that you do with the podcast. Um, so, you know, I think I've had a bit of a nonlinear path from a career perspective. Um, you know, I started my career uh, as I was, I started as an engineer actually at, at Thortech, which is a company um, in the heart failure space. And so we, we developed uh, heart pumps, essentially, that were meant to work for potentially the, the remainder of a person's life. Um, and these are typically very sick patients. And so, you know, they don't have a whole lot of options. And, and you know, that was intriguing to me. And I think what I, you know, I think back to kind of what started me or, you know, in, into that career path was, you know, I vividly remember kind of these technologies quite literally changing the trajectory of disease for these patient populations. And that initially was the hook. Right. Um, I think it was that and the fact that they were willing to hire me. Right. So uh, it, that, I think that was probably number one. And the number two was, you know, just the mission and everything else that the company had, I thought was incredibly impressive. And, um, you know, just to be able to do that with uh, machinery, technologies, medicine and, um, you know, was was I thought incredibly impressive. And, mm -hmm. you know, from there. I ended up moving towards uh, kind of out, out after my engineering role to a product management role. And that was, um, you know, I think for me, kind of one of one big change career wise, because I, I had initially thought that I could be an engineer for the next 20, 30, 40 plus years. My, you know, my parents come from kind of a technical background and I just assumed that that, that would be the right path for me as well. Um, and then, you know, shifting to product management, I think was really my first entree into business, really understanding how to think about, 
launching a product and what customers want and, <laughs> you know, all these different things that I think coming from a background where you're heavily focused on, you know, math and science and you don't really think too much about the business aspects of, of a company. Um, you know, it was, it was a great initial education into the role. Um, and then, you know, from there, uh, I ended up going to business school and, and ended up joining Medtronic in a corporate strategy role. Um, and I would say it was at Medtronic where I really got the formal education and application into business. You know, it was there that I really began to understand kind of different businesses and started to enjoy breaking them down, putting them together, kind of recognizing what led to creating value for not just kind of our patients and our clinical community, but also for a large corporation. Um, and, you know, after that corporate strategy stint, uh, I spent, I'd say, the next four to five years really diving into the world of what at Medtronic we were calling at the time value-based healthcare. Um, mm-hmm. And I think we, we, you know, we've talked about, I, think, I know Medtronic has talked about this before. Um, and it's, it's just really understanding, uh, you know, the general business of healthcare, right? Really understanding incentives, healthcare policy, payers, providers, you know, I, I ended up leading our M&A and strategy team within this domain at Medtronic. And, you know, it was a fun period of time. Um, mm-hmm. Lots of learnings, looking at companies that were very different than what Medtronic was used to looking at, whether they were services companies or software-based companies. Um, and I'd say, you know, I learned a lot. Um, there's probably some goods and bads and failures along the way, um, puts and starts, I would put it. Um, but, you know, I started having an itch to really get back into the technology and kind of product focus that I had started my career. Um, and that's what eventually led to a, a job. It was a newly created effort actually within Medtronic to have a venture capital function. Um, and that was another transformative ramp for me personally. It was an opportunity to understand, you know, how the world of venture capital works, how to think deeply about researching new spaces and companies, um, developing theses funding select companies per year, and then underwriting risk, right, and, and managing that portfolio over time. And so, you know, that was about a four or five year uh, journey at Medtronic as well. Um, and I'd say it was all those different experiences, both combined with Thorotech and at Medtronic, you know, really learning about core technologies, learning about value-based healthcare, as I was describing, kind of really trying to understand how to steer the ship in that direction, um, understanding different stakeholders, you know, how different products, um, whether they're software-based or hardware, kind of dev- typical devices, um, you know, kind of all of that work led me to where I am today, which is which is at Fensana Capital, which I can talk about as well. Yeah. So before we uh, dive in more about your work at Fensana, um, what caught my um, thinking about is the value-based care. Mm-hmm. And I, I think there's a lot more toward that direction. And I think sometimes being on medical devices, you know, like how do you make that transition or path to get to embrace the whole value-based care. Like you, you have that experience a lot in Medtronic. Can you share with yep. us some of the things uh, that you learned and some of the mistakes that you've made? Yeah, no, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a great question. And I wish, I wish I had a perfect answer here, right? But um, I think it was an interesting evolution for Medtronic. You know, just thinking back to kind of where it started from, um, a lot of the work originated out of Europe, in fact. I, I ended up spending a year there while I was at Medtronic to really kind of learn where the genesis really happened. And, you know, the way it worked was a lot of the um, kind of our commercial sales force in, in Medtronic Europe started managing cath labs and other departments while we were out there. And we just had so much product running through these different departments. And eventually the department heads at, at these, whether it was cath labs or, um, you know, ORs, you know, really started asking for help in managing, you know, maybe initially things like inventory, 
um, and over time, kind of just overall workflows, how to just be more efficient. Um, and, you know, that started leading to, you know, how do we ensure better outcomes in, in these patients' clinical outcomes as well? Um, so there was always this kind of economic efficiency bent to it, uh, but it eventually started shifting more towards a clinical bent as well. Um, and I think that was really the trigger that started this business for Medtronic. Um, uh, and I thought Medtronic was in a unique place, right? We were considered a very trusted partner with some of these different institutions. Um, you know, and that started lending itself to different areas across Medtronic. I think there was a lot of interest um, really from the top, from our CEO uh, and other you know, leaders at Medtronic to think, how do we apply these same principles to other you know, our businesses today where we can become more partners with our, uh, I, I guess, customers, so to speak, right? And, um, you know, a few different areas that I spent a lot of time on was to think really hard about bundled payments, which was an area that, you know, in my mind, at least, um, made a lot of sense for a medical device company to participate in. I mean, I wrote a white paper, even, in fact, I think, um, on how to, how to think about that and, and, you know, how to manage distinct populations through a certain kind of window or workflow, um, whether that was 90 days or, you know, in some cases even longer, um, but really being on the hook for the clinical outcomes and the economics for that patient as well. Um, you know, I think additional areas that we looked pretty closely at was how do we take risk with um, pairs, I guess, in the U.S. especially, um, where, you know, we really felt that some of the technologies that we were bringing forth um, can continue to be paid in the way that they're paid today. But I think what everybody could agree to is the way that things are paid for today may not be how things are paid for five years from now or even 20 years from now, right? And so how do we start really dipping our toe into um, kind of understanding the pain points for our, you know, the payers today? Um, and so, you know, some of that involved, well, why don't we help you manage that risk? Because we felt confident with the technologies that we were bringing to the table. And so whether that was in particular clinical domains like heart failure or diabetes, um, you know, we, we had to be pretty thoughtful about what was the operational framework in, in doing something like that. You know, we weren't, um, you know, I wouldn't say that we were, uh, uh, you know, experts at, at taking risk and underwriting risk when it comes to large populations. But, um, you know, do we need to add service components? Do we need to add administrative capabilities? And I think a lot of that was what I was tasked with, with how do we take this, these different visions that we have across the organization and really try to operationalize them within the company? So at the end, um, with that uh, in mind about understanding that the payers' uh, interests now versus down the road, did Medtronic do something differently, adding different services? And is that something that you think, um, I mean, it's probably not, like you said, Medtronic's strength, but then is it something that the strength that Medtronic is building, willing to invest and build on it or at the end it's not like well you know this is not really our thing yeah no i think it's a good i think it's a good question right and i think there's multiple answers here right so if you think about um you know medtronic is always great or, or any corporate really is, is graded on multiple different fronts right you have your customers and your patients that you're delivering products to um but you also have wall street right and they're they're taking a very close look at you know, are you doing what you're saying? And we're willing to believe, um, uh, you know, some of your visions or some of the kind of the, the moonshots that you have, let's say. Um, but over time, if, if things aren't panning out, you know, you really have to you start kind of paying, paying Piper from that front. And so I think there was a really concerted effort for a number of years to try to identify different ways to um, 
pursue value-based healthcare, right? And um, and I think we we started a lot of different pilots. A lot of our businesses, in fact, started thinking very differently, thinking about data and services and kind of some of those other factors. Um, and you know that you know I, I'm not there anymore, but that has continued. You know, even since I was gone, and I think I think um, you know the company has really been. Uh, focused, whether it's in the U.S. or even internationally, in some cases, it's, it's easier to do internationally just because the governments and the pay, payment systems there just are more aligned that you, you don't have to worry about, you know, if you're able to improve an outcome three to five years down the road in the U.S. Um, system, that may not be something that, you know, is, is you know, in, let's say meets the ROI requirements, right? Mm-hmm. Um, maybe that's too technical of a term, but, you, you know, you, don't, you know exactly what I mean, right? And um, whereas I feel like in certain other governments, there's just more uh, willingness to understand kind of longitudinal outcomes for patients, whether that's you know clinical or, or if you're able to save costs. And so I think there's been continued effort on that front. And, um, you know, I think one of the most intriguing things that that Medtronic and other companies are now thinking more and more about is how do you convert, you know, how do you have that conversion between our typical device businesses but then also with um, data, digital health services, different types of business models. And I think there's a lot of exploratory work that continues, you know, to this day. And it's, it's actually really driven a lot of kind of how I think about investing in companies um, that are, in, you know, in that intersection with devices and with data as well. Right. So which brings me to my next question uh, about Finsana Capital. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you can tell me more about what are the focus areas that Finsana Capital is interested in? And we can start from there. Yeah, no, that sounds good. Um, so Vinsana itself is, uh, you know, it's a firm that we, so we invest essentially in everything outside of uh, biopharma, I would say, I think simply, right? So we, you know, we invest in uh, devices, we invest in digital health, diagnostics, tools, drug delivery. So pretty much everything in that kind of healthcare ecosystem. And you know, maybe even just stepping back a little bit, kind of as the philosophy of the firm, um, you know, it was really founded by these two uh, uh, investors, really, Kirk Nielsen and, and Justin Klein, who I met during my time at Medtronic. Um, you know, and they've been some of the most successful uh, investors in the medtech ecosystem, um, you know, kind of investing across that portfolio, as I described. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, the strategy that Vinsana, that they put together really for Vinsana was, you know, really to try to be focused and deliberate about how how many opportunities we look at each year. I think, you know, on a, on a given year basis, we we make a handful of investments, um, you know, three to, let's say, three to five or six new investments per year. You know, and I think that really gives us the time and space to be proactive and thoughtful about where we want to spend our time and our dollars. Um, and, you know, candidly, I feel like, uh, you know, maybe this sounds a little businessy, but it's, it is a bit of a competitive advantage in our field too, um, uh, you know, especially in this current time period. This podcast is sponsored by Brown Rutnick's Global Life Sciences Group, a team of legal professionals that help life science companies, lenders, and investors around the world turn good science into good business. Learn more at brownrudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Canon Quality Group, Canon Quality Group has been helping med tech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, turn to the experts at canonqualitygroup.com. I'm so glad that you still mentioned about medical devices. As you know, there's not that many investors these days out there for medical devices. And of, of course, everybody 
you know, what's the trend that you see um, in a lot of the medical devices innovation? And I feel like at the same time, everybody now is trying to put in every AI in the world that they can come up yeah. with and put it in the device, slap it there, and then we can look for more funding. Yeah, no, it, I, yeah, so I, look, I agree with you. I, what I will say, though, I, I think the last few years have been really fruitful for the device sector, right? I mean, it, um, you know, I think a lot of uh, new capital came in. I think the, the markets overall were very positive to, to devices. There was a number of companies that were able to IPO. Um, so I, I do think there's been more capital that's come in. Um, and, you know, candidly, from our perspective, that, that means that there's, you know, potentially more competition because capital starts becoming a bit of a commodity to a certain degree. Um, I, I wouldn't say it's, you know, nearly at the level that we see in our kind of digital health portfolio or, um, you know, or biopharma, which has always been, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, almost a magnitude greater as far as investment dollars are concerned. But, um, you know, I, I think in my mind, that's, that's, that's good, right? I, I, I do think that, uh, um, you know, the way we kind of think about deals, as I was, as I was kind of mentioning, is we tend to be very deliberate and focused. And so especially when there is so much more capital coming in and compressed timelines, um, you know, I, I think the, the strategy of really spending most of our time, you know, kind of identifying which areas we want to play in um, and trying to limit the number of deals that we do, being really deliberate about that, you know, I think allows us to get conviction in spaces and areas, you know, well in advance of financing events. And so I think that's been good. As far as areas and spaces, um, you know, purely in the device sector, look, I agree. Um, but I also don't think that's a bad thing, right? So I, I know it's almost, um, it's almost, uh, a joke to a certain degree to say that, hey, well, we do AI and we do robotics and here's our valuation, right? Um, you know, but on the flip side, you know, I think when I came into the my venture part of my career, let's say five or so years ago, so it hasn't been that long, but um, I think there was a genuine question that I heard while getting coffee or lunch or whatnot with individuals of, you know, where is our next generation of entrepreneurs going to come from? Right. I think this has been an industry that's been rooted over the last 50, 60, 70 plus years. And I think we have some incredible entrepreneurs who've really been able to develop incredible technologies. Um, but there was always that question that, you know, digital health or biotech or, you know, folks are going into just pure tech or um, different areas. And kind of where is med tech going to be uh, or, or devices more specifically going to be? So in my mind, having this convergence, I think, is is great for the industry. Um <laughs> I think you're really seeing a lot of younger entrepreneurs um, who want to do meaningful work and realize that, you know, they don't want to be a doctor or, 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 or you know, they don't want to go into, you know, working in a lab or, or something like that, that they're really seeing that you can take devices, whether it's devices that, you know, look and feel more like software or devices that have software components, you know, but with hardware, um, with physical devices as well, that, you know, in their minds can really make a difference. So, so I'm pretty bullish about that. Um, uh, and I think I think it's been good for the ecosystem. Yeah, no, I think I'm really. I feel like nowadays, the there's still a lot of challenges in healthcare that you have to be more creative in how to solve the problem. And I think you need more collaboration in different areas. I think you know, perfect example, company like Color Health, for example, that has somebody who understands devices, but understand neuroscience. I feel like there's a lot more of that. I think that's yeah. an exciting time to be in that uh, technology space that's trying to help people. I don't know if you can share with us a couple of the companies that you're excited about from that you've seen at Fasana uh, or the time that you were at Medtronic. Uh, 
before you joined Fensana? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, so one of the companies that is in our portfolio that, you know, I think a lot of us are quite excited about is Clearly Health. Um, you know, it's a, it's a diagnostic platform built really on CTs, um, you know, with, with an AI engine actually, but um, to, to really help characterize disease and, and better treat that patient population. So, you know, in my mind, as I think about digital health investments, you know, it really fits the bill mm-hmm. of what we tend to look for, which, you know, I, I know it's not a perfect framework, um, but what I would say is, you know, having a, a team or a leader who really has, I think, having clinical roots, such as um, such as the CEO in that company example, you know, really has, I think, I think is phenomenal because they could really understand and speak the language of kind of the ecosystem today, the clinical leadership, you know, the, the uh, uh you know, whether it's to do studies or whether it's for, for um, penetration down the road when, when we're, you know, when the company's commercial. Um, but also, you know, I, I don't think that those types of companies are afraid of generating really rigorous clinical evidence. And, you know, just given our device backgrounds, I, I feel like that's an area that we have a lot of comfort in and, and we like to see those kinds of companies as well. So anyway, um, you know, I'd say, I'd say that's one company. Um, you know, uh, other companies, you know, that we've we've looked at, uh, or, or that are in our portfolio, I would say, you know, we have um, things in the cardiac space, whether that's um, what CBRX that's really looking to tackle uh, heart failure um, or, you know, companies like Relievant, um, which is looking at uh, pain uh, and, you know, kind of having different interventional models for treating things like that. You know, what I'll, I'll be the first to say, though, I've, I've been at Vinsana for seven months now. So, so um, you know, my hope is really how do we find more of these types of company, especially as we get into kind of our second fund here mm-hmm. um, this year. So having done um, corporate venture capital versus sure. uh, non-corporate, I know that it's still early for you at Vinsana, but I'm sure you've seen the difference already. And as a startup, is that, how you approach them should be different or do you think there's a lot of similarities? Yeah, I think it's a fair question. Um, you know, I'd say there's, well, I'd say there's probably more similar similarities than differences, especially with the corporate VC firms that have stood the test of time. You know, I think there are a number of corporate VC firms that kind of come in and out, right? When times are good um, and, you know, maybe there's an interest at the top, Hey, we should go find new companies, new technologies out there. But then when times are bad that that, you know, program shuts down. I think, you know, I think those are probably less favorable for the overall ecosystem. But, you know, you do have um, corporate VCs that, you know, have really been there for a long time. It's a commitment from kind of the leadership um, to not only help generate returns for the for the mothership, but also to go find, you know, these um, exciting technologies that might be uh, that are strategic to, to, to that organization. Um, I, I, so in my mind, I'd, I'd say there's generally more similarities. I'd say, you know, out of the differences, you know, the one nice thing at um, an institutional VC such as Vensana is this is really the business at, you know, Vensana is we're making investments. We're trying to be very thoughtful about, you know, where we spend our time, where we make investments, um, and then how we help our portfolio companies really succeed. Um, at a corporate, as you can imagine, there's, you know, 10 or 20 different uh, stakeholders and different customers, so to speak, internally. Um, and, you know, venture capital is not the core business of a corporate, obviously. And so to me, that's really the fundamental difference. But, you know, at the end of the day, it really comes down to, you know, is is the 
the person that you're dealing with at the VC, whether it's at the corporate or mm-hmm. or an institutional VC, you know, really somebody that you feel is going to be value add to yourself as the entrepreneur and and to your management team. Um, and I feel like that's probably the most important thing. And you know, I, I you know, I feel like I've been pretty lucky from that standpoint because even during my time at Medtronic, I thought we had you know some a phenomenal team. We had a six person team and. You know, I think everybody was sort of had their heart in the right place as to what what was important at the end of the day, and um, and I would you know echo that here at mm-hmm. Benzana. It was it was a big part of kind of selecting to come here. Having have the experience in the value based care, in um, how do you see as a startup to think about how to incorporate that thinking? Because I think I don't think it's going away in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good question. I think it depends, right? So if, if you have a breakthrough technological innovation and, you know, you're really going after an unmet need that you have a really strong clinical value proposition, whether it's, a, you know, with, with your, let's say, device, um, you may be able to not think too heavily about value. You don't, you may not have to, right, for the near term, because, you know, what you're doing is going to change standard of care because of your breakthrough innovation. And, and um you know, hopefully you can build out the clinical evidence and go through the regulatory pathways, get reimbursement, et cetera. And, and, you know, you could have a viable product and company, you know, on the flip side, if you have a product that, um, you know, really relies on uh, the mechanisms of payment today, the reimbursement mechanisms of payment today, or, or maybe they don't exist today. I think those companies have to be incredibly mindful about how they think about not only the clinical value proposition, but also the, you know, the economic value proposition and, you know, is it is there a viable business model that hopefully makes sense in both worlds, right? In the fee for service world, because that's still how the majority of transactions are happening today, uh, but also with a line of sight to the value based world. Um, and I think that's candidly, I think that's hard for companies to balance both. But I think the the companies that, in my mind, have been successful have been able to ha- have been able to succeed in both. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, as the world transitions over to more value based care, um, I think those kinds of companies. Um, you know, we'll probably be the best prepared to, to make that transition. Do you have any good example that you think companies that has been successful? Yeah, um, you know, I think so. I mean, this is a this is probably a category that um, I mean, I've spent some time here looking at, um, especially during my time at Medtronic, but you know, has gotten a lot of interest. So, if you think about primary care redesign and, and all the different companies that have come in that space, um, and I think there's a you know a host of statistics and data that someone can rattle off about, you know, how much, uh, if you can shift, um, the trajectory of a patient and really start with primary care to help manage that trajectory, um, that you can hopefully, you know, not only improve improve clinical outcomes, but also, you know, dramatically reduce costs for that patient. Um, but the majority of primary care, as we all know, is, is, you know, functions under a fee for service world. And I think if you look at some of the companies that have been, more successful, you know, some of them have really started shifting to a risk-based model over the last, I'd say, five years. Um, you know, a few companies that we spent a great deal of time on, things like Landmark Health or Iora, you know, Iora Medical, um, and some other companies of that of that vein. You know, I thought what they did really well was they identified very specifically which population was in in their you know uh, care model and which population they were not going to worry about. Um, and you, you see it in the um, in the renal side as well. Actually, a few companies in that space. Um, and I think I think those companies have done a really great job. And I think time will tell, right? As far as will they be successful long term? Because some of these companies, although I think from a VC standpoint, or they're in the headlines quite a bit, you know, but they may only manage 
5,000, 10,000, 20,000, 50,000 patients, and you have, you know, hopefully a ways to get to a million patients right. or, or, or more, right? So I, I think that's going to be the key test for these for these mm-hmm. companies is um, I think they've done the initial right things to, tra- to transition in both or to, to operate in both worlds. But um, I think timing is hard, right? And really yeah. understanding when uh, when the world flips to value-based healthcare, I think you got to be ready, right? Yeah, so, look at what uh, happened to COVID and then it just yeah. gives different trajectory for a different uh, part agree. of the yeah. industry. Yeah. So I know we're running out of time, but I want to maybe ask you one last question. You've seen a lot of company presentation pitches. You meet a lot of entrepreneurs. What are the uh, mistakes that you've seen that, you, should, you can share with others so that they can avoid. And there's also another question. What mistake that entrepreneurs need to go through in order to be able to become a better entrepreneur? Yeah, I, those are, look, those are great questions, right? And um, I agree. So, so my experience as far as uh, reviewing pitches is probably in the hundreds, if not thousands, right? And I, I think there's a skill set that entrepreneurs need to develop when it comes to pitching their story. And, you know, I don't think these are big mistakes because generally speaking, these entrepreneurs are probably some of the best individuals in the world at attacking the problem that they're going after. What You know, they may have incredible expertise or domain expertise, whether it's clinical or technical or something else. Um, and, you know, a pitch deck is a pitch deck at the end of the day, right? And, and, and I always urge or or recommend to entrepreneurs just to make sure that you have a very clear story. I think at the end of the day, um, uh, capital providers, whether it's, you know, venture capitalists or whether it's strategics or, you know, debt providers, um, kind of all the different worlds there, you know, are typically looking for a similar framework of things. And so I I think that's a relatively basic skill, but it it is a skill that, you know, hopefully can be honed in over time. Um, I think some of the more, more critical errors as I think about it is, um, you know, not, not having a full grasp of what are the one to two or three things that are going to make or break, you know, your company, right? And in some cases that could be reimbursement. And, you know, if we're starting to dig into reimbursement, for example, on a, on a device company that there's no code or no, no, uh, no reimbursement paradigm that exists today. And that team hasn't really spent a whole lot of time thinking about that, that element. And they've really spent all of their time thinking about, you know, the product features that their product has and why that's better than, you know, the other products out there. I, I feel like things like that are, in my mind, a bit of a red flag just because you want to make sure that you're, you know, you're really honing in on what are the key, what are the, going to be the key risks that um, stand in the way of, of really creating value for, you know, the company, the patients, the shareholders, everybody else. Um, I would say that's, that's probably the biggest watch out in my mind is, you know, really being thoughtful about how do you define success um, in the next three, five, 10 years for, for a particular company? And how do you, how do you ensure that you're focused on, on those few things, especially when you're doing a pitch? Um, but absolutely, you know, as you're running your business. Mm-hmm. So um, I was about to ask you my, uh, my follow-up question, but I'm running out of time. No, nope, no problem. But there's so many different investors out there. And sure. um, I guess what I'm asking, like, what is the right way of defining success? that is has to be realistic that has to be achievable there's a path to get there or defining success that align with the investors yeah yeah and look I, to your point right i think there's a lot of different ways <laughs> to, to define it right and and i think it depends on the lens that you want to look at 
from an investor standpoint, I'd say what we tend to look for is, you know, uh, what what is going to get this company over the next, let's say, three to five, three to seven year horizon um, to a place where hopefully that they're there's an exit opportunity there, right? And, and exits generally happen, whether that's a strategic or a corporate that becomes really interested or whether they have the ability to go IPO. That's generally based off, you know, a few factors, right? If, is there strong you know, clinical evidence that the company has started to generate or has generated that really shows that there's there's that value proposition that is going to really shift clinical decision-making, right? I think the hope for most of these technologies is to, to really redefine um, how care is delivered um, for, for that population. Um, so I think I think that's that's one element that generally companies need to be pretty thoughtful of. I think another element, um, you know, is really uh, managing the regulatory pathway. Um, you know, I, I think the FDA has done a you know, phenomenal job over the last last let's say five to ten years of trying to be pretty clear about what is required to get your product to market. And um, you know, that's another underpinning of what typically tends to define success and, and can lead to exits for these companies. Um, you know, and then and then I think lastly is is there a is there a business model that kind of underpins the whole thing, and whether it's under the confines of the fee for service model today, um, with typical reimbursement that many of these companies have to go through, um, which you know has been a challenge for a lot of companies in the last few years. I, I, we've seen a lot of companies that have taken longer to you know get to that kind of value creation or success point. Uh, just because that's taken two, three, four years longer than, than one expects, right? And so, so I think that would be kind of a key element as well. Um, you know, once again, whether that's part of the, today's uh, uh, fee-for-service world or whether there's different kind of innovative business models that that company's thinking. But I think being thoughtful about that is, is important too. So, you know, it's a broad question, but I think from an investor standpoint, I think those are the things that we tend to think about uh, how you define success for a company. And, you know, of course, that's it's, it's going to be different from, from every other stakeholder's perspective. Well, that's great. Well, thank you for sharing that. No, of course. Thanks for your time. Thank you, Christine. Appreciate it once again. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Health Technology Podcast. We want to thank our executive producer, Herminio Neto, and our podcast engineer, Andrew Rojek. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The Health Technology Podcast is available on all major platforms.